Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Lexum Press. Lexum Press seeks to produce works that will increase biblical literacy in conversation with the great tradition of Christian theological reflection. The Snapshot series, edited by Michael Bird, engages significant issues in contemporary biblical scholarship, making them accessible to busy students of the Word and applicable in life of the church. You can learn more at lexumpress.com. Today's episode is with Father John Bear. Uh, we had a conversation about this time last year, and uh, it was at his um, office at St. Vladimir Seminary in New York. Well, since then, he has uh, transitioned to being professor of divinity at the University of Aberdeen starting in the fall, and will be moving soon, hopefully, if uh, the coronavirus things um, ease up and he's able to travel internationally. We talk about that a little bit, but mainly we talk about his book, from Oxford Press called John the Theologian and his Paschal Gospel. We talk a little bit about how he views the authorship of the Gospel of John and how that impacts sort of the way that he views it and the way that he interprets it uh, and vice versa. So there's a a really good conversation and an interesting conversation there about the authorship. And then we get into a lot of the theological themes about John as this high priest of the Pascha, uh, the Easter, right? Pascha, the Easter celebration and uh, how he views uh, Jesus and how he talks about him as the word and about his flesh. This is a really, uh, as always with Father John, a really interesting and illuminating and exciting uh, theological conversation about the things that he sees, the way that he uh, employs patristic uh, methods and patristic uh, sources to better understand scripture. And so I hope you'll enjoy uh, our conversation with him as we talk about that and about the history of Easter and how Easter has developed and how we practice it now, good and bad. Church Grammar is presented by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to see all of their latest books and offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, an English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. You can learn more about the CSB at csbible.com. And now, my conversation with Father John Bear. But first, no big deal. church grammar, uh, maybe to his own detriment or his own punishment, but here he is. So, so Father John, thank you so much for being on today. Oh, it's good to be back with you again. So we are recording, last time we recorded, we recorded at St. Vladimir's uh, in New York together and, and sat across from each other in your office and uh, got to enjoy uh, some time together. But now because of this uh, COVID crisis and, and me moving to Ohio, uh, we are now finding out how to um, be creative and so we're both in secret bunkers right now trying to have uh, peace and quiet and a clear internet connection. So uh, I've got, I came up to the office to get away from my six and three year old and uh, I have a lawnmower <laughs> in the background now. So this is, this is where we are. Okay. looks good. looks good. So um, yeah, so you're transitioning to the University of Aberdeen. So congratulations yes. on that. You're in New York right now. So I guess you're going to move mm-hmm. this summer. Hopefully, we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, that's that's true. Yeah, assuming people let you fly. So yes. <laughs> yeah, we're we're due to be moving at the beginning of July. Okay, well, that might be safe, depending on you know the, the, yeah. the news changes all the time. But yeah, I think if, if if there's no international travel at that point, we're going to be in such a bad place altogether. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, one of the things is it seems like everybody realizes how crazy this time is and how. So hopefully, there'll be some some sort of reprieve or help for you there. Yeah. Well, we'll see. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, let's talk about your uh, your new book with Oxford Press, uh, John the Theologian and His Paschal Gospel. It's Easter week, and so um, you know we could say it's his Easter gospel, right? This is this is mm-hmm. a sort of uh, he call him the high priest of the Pascha, the high priest of Easter. And so, um, as always with your books, it's it's um, provocative in the best way, not provocative in an unnecessary you know sort of. Uh, mm-hmm. to make people mad way, but um, you know, you you always are going back to the source text. You're always going back and trying to say, okay, how can we talk about this in a way that's historically accurate, theologically accurate? And so, uh, I found it really, really helpful. So, if you want to just uh, sort of tee it up a little bit, talk about the thesis of the book, why you wrote it, and what contribution you hope to make. So, you know, I spent I did my doctoral work on Irenaeus back in the early '90s. Finished it back then, and I spent most of my time living and working in the early church in those early centuries, and working especially in the second century and the the earliest period. It really became clear to me that they had a very particular way of looking at things and holding things together. The way that they spoke about the passion, the way they spoke about Christ, the way they read, they were reading the scriptures, which primarily means what we now call the Old Testament. You know, that's a primary material for understanding Christ through the cross and so on. The way they spoke about incarnation, the way they understood the the way the word became flesh and what that means, quite often very different to the way that we do it today. So what I decided to do, having spent so much time in that period grappling with all of that, to actually go back to John himself, to the gospel itself, and try and put the earliest readers of John, Irenaeus and people like that, Origen as well, but Irenaeus especially, um, put them into dialogue with contemporary scriptural scholarship. Yeah. So it then took know, 10 years of reading through 20th century scholarship on John and trying to get a handle on all of that. Yeah, nobody's to- ever written about it, right? So. <laughs> no, so people write an Irenaeus, or people write about uh, John and do all the kind of stuff they do in modern scriptural scholarship on John, but they, do, they very really put the two things actually together into dialogue. Yeah? Yeah. We assume we know what the early church meant without ever having really gone into it, um, and then those assumptions form the presuppositions for what we think John, modern scriptural scholarship thinks John is doing in his gospel and so on. So really just put those into dialogue with each other and see what could be learned from that. And then... You know, my first degree was in philosophy, uh, continental philosophy especially, and about 10 years ago or so, somebody introduced me to Michel Henry, a French phenomenologist, uh, whose last three books really are, in fact, a meditation on the Gospel of John. And so I thought, well, why not put three groups of readers together into dialogue <laughs> with each other, just to really expand it all together? Um, because the kind of things I was finding in Michel Henry uh, had great resonance with what I was finding with people like Irenaeus and so on. So, a constructive dialogue between all three. Yeah, that's really helpful. So, uh, what was what was uh, Michel Henry particularly offering uh, in terms of why you felt like you needed to bring him in for you know a third third part of your book? That's a really complex question because his work is so so complex, especially for people who don't have background in phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Okay, but his basic point is that. We have become so absorbed in technical terms in the horizon of the world. You know, we think that what we see is what there is, and that defines the realm of being. Whereas, in fact, prior to the horizon of the world, we already find ourselves in the horizon of life. We are living before we see the world, to put it in that way, yeah? And then his observation that life is something which is not seen in the world. You can't see life. You can see living beings, but you can't see life. So life doesn't appear in the horizon of the world. 
Yeah. When you try and study life, he points out, biologists end up studying uh, enzymes and charges and whatever else it might be. They see they study see things which appear, but which are not themselves life. Mm. Life, he points out, is only seen in the experience of life. Just like pain. Pain is only joy and suffering altogether, both positive and negative, pain and joy. You don't see joy. You see somebody happy, but you don't see joy. You see somebody who's suffering, but you don't see the suffering. Suffering is only seen in the experience of suffering. Yeah, uh, Life is only seen in the horizon of life. And so there's a connection between uh, that life which is seen and experienced in the pathos of life, pathos, passion, which is not of this world, mm -hmm. where the world is understood in that phenomenological sense of what appears under the horizon of the sun. Yeah, yeah. And it, he, he draws it out very clearly from the Gospel of John. Because I, because I live, you will live also. Mm -hmm. yeah? And in that life, you will see me. Yeah, the life which comes through the passion, Easter, you know, so, so all those kind of connections. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right. So um, you start out the book talking about the authorship of the book. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a, I was telling you before we started recording, you know, uh, in, in my circles, most circles I've been around and read in, the assumption is the author of the gospel is the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 yeah. uh, disciples. Uh, a lot of that is built off of actually interpretation of what Irenaeus and Eusebius and some others are saying. Well, at least that, that's the perception, right? That's, that's what yeah. they, where they say they get it from. And so, uh, you know, one, I think what is most helpful in your argument you say it's John the Elder, it's not John the son of Zebedee, but you make a historical case. This isn't uh, just a simple, yeah. I think, First John sounds more like the Gospel of John, but you actually go through the historical case. So talk through uh, where you come to on authorship and why, and then the connection to his role as this high priest of the Pasha. Historically speaking, it really wasn't an issue until Eusebius. Hmm. Eusebius is the first one who actually muddies the waters and he does that for his own particular reason because he wants to discredit the the, the book of revelation yeah and yeah as not being by john it's not really apostolic and so on and so on that hurts yeah? my heart by the way I really <laughs> yeah well that's eusebius but there we go <laughs> and we'll see that when it comes to the question of of pascha easter he also does the same kind of thing with regard to what's going on in the second century but we'll, we'll come to that later so it's been debated since eusebius and there's been, you know, in contemporary scholarship from the 19th century onwards, there have been voices on either side, uh, from Lightfoot in the 19th century, and then most recently among New Testament scholars with um, Richard Baucom in his Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, right. where he, and I, I totally agree with him, he makes a very strong case, both on internal grounds and external grounds, that you cannot identify the author of the gospel with the son of Zebedee. Okay, on internal grounds, very straightforward. You know, things like um, the twelve play no role in John. Yeah, the twelve are mentioned a couple of times, but the, it's not the central thing that you've got in the, in the synoptic gospels. Just ma matter of fact, you've got a whole bunch of figures that appear in uh, John that don't appear in the synoptics, Nicodemus and people like that. Yeah, so you've got internal grounds that it, well, it's not as straightforward as one might think. Okay, Lightfoot, back in the 19th century, he pointed out something which I don't really think has been sufficiently taken account of. New Testament scholars, when they talk about the community of John, Raymond Brown, the community of the beloved disciple, or, I don't know, uh, Stendhal, the community of, the, of Matthew, the, the school of Matthew, that kind of language, those are all literary constructions. Hmm. 
you know, you're looking at the gospel, you're, you're, you're hypothesizing what kind of context it must have been written in to be written in this kind of way, who the readers were, what role they had in shaping the gospel, and whatever, all those kind of questions, yeah? But that, that's a literary construction based on this reading of these texts. What we've got for John, however, and it really only goes for John, no one else, not even Paul, we've got a number of people in the second century who trace their theological lineage, their ecclesial lineage, back to John himself. Mm -hmm. Most clearly Irenaeus. You know, Irenaeus writes a letter preserved in Eusebius saying how I sat at the feet of Polycarp while he recounted everything that he remembered about John. John, Polycarp, Irenaeus. You, You can say he's making it up if you want to, but you've got no reason for doing that, really. It's a strong historical memory which is now written down as almost for anybody in history. Yeah. So you've got this, what Lightfoot calls the school of John. It includes Polycarp, Polycrates, Melito, Irenaeus, and so on. Okay. So they claim, again, you can, do, you can disbelieve it, but they claim to have this living connection back to John himself. Right. So right. their evidence really should be taken seriously. Now, when you read Irenaeus, it is overwhelmingly clear that he differentiates how he speaks of the beloved disciple, the author of the gospel, who lay on the breast of Jesus. On the one hand, he does it in really loving terms, in familial terms, you know, like talking about a great uncle or something like that. Right. Yeah, it, it really, really strong. And he never calls him um, the son of Zebedee. When he talks about John the son of Zebedee, it's only in the context of talking about a passage from the synoptics. The Transfiguration or something like that, yeah? That's the only time he talks about John, the son of Zebedee. And when he talks about that John, the son of Zebedee, he never uses the language that he uses for John, the beloved disciple who lay on the breast of Jesus and so on. So unless you presume otherwise, and then you just kind of conflate it without really recognizing it, Irenaeus is making a really strong distinction between the two, okay? And it is just unambiguous for him that the John who lay on the breast of Jesus is the author of the gospel and the author of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, and the letters. It's a single figure, and they trace their theological lineage back to him. So the, the, the identification of the John who wrote the gospel with the son of Zebedee actually seems to begin in Gnostic circles, hmm. who don't know this living memory. Yeah, and they just make the assumption, John, John, but there you go. Yeah, um, after Irenaeus, that living tradition of, you know, intimate memory of so and so and so and so back to John, um, is really lost, and then you start to get the conflation, and so it's inevitable that from the mid third century onwards, the two figures become conflated. Yeah, I mean, nothing much really rests upon it. Right, but if you right. want to do justice to what the second century people are saying, who, who claim to have this background, they are making a difference. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the arguments for the son of Zebedee is this kind of idea that this is clearly an eyewitness of Jesus' yeah. ministry and his passion. And so you're not denying that. You're not saying it's some distant elder, you know, some later John necessarily. I mean, you make the argument he is an eyewitness. That's correct. <laughs> well, you know, in fact, you can even do further. He's the only eyewitness of the passion. The other disciples have fled. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, so you want to, you want to say uh, even that uh, the John who writes the Gospel of John is the one at the foot of the cross. Yeah. It's not the son of Zebedee. Yes. 
Yeah. So, um, so who am I witness? I mean, and you know, claiming a unique, a unique position is the eyewitness. Sure. Yep. Yeah. And that's reiterated at various points in the gospel, you know, in the prologue, at the scene of the cross and at the epilogue, you know, we are bearing witness to him. He bore witness and we bear witness to him that he, that he bore witness. Yeah. But self-consciously and emphatically made the eyewitness status of this. Yeah. Regardless of, of who you think he is, there's no doubt he was a unique, uh, perhaps unique, at least distinct eyewitness in his own yeah. uh, narrative. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you talk through then kind of his, um, his role of the high priest of Pasha, the sort of community so aspect? The other, the other absolutely really fascinating thing about this, and this really kind of goes to the heart of why I felt it important to write the book and bring in these second century figures. Kaiserman, in, in his book, uh, The Last Will of Jesus, his book on John, he actually makes a claim. I mean, it's written in the 60s, the disciple of Boltman and, and so on, but it, it's, it's kind of a claim which... Is an exaggeration of a presupposition which holds most New Testament scholarship with regard to John. Kaisman says that John is so enthralled by the idea of incarnation that he's really got no place for the passion. Yeah, and he he only it's got no place in his gospel. In his gospel, you've got this divine figure walking upon the earth, saying things from above, you are from below, all of that kind of thing. Um, and then he goes on to say that uh, the only reason why John, a theologian of the incarnation, um, includes a, the, the narrative about the passion is because he had to as a nod to tradition. It's got no integral part in his gospel, but he had to include it nevertheless because it's part of what's being written, part of what's being handed down. Yeah. Uh, John, so John is so dominated by the idea of incarnation. The word of God became flesh, dwelt on earth, and, and so on. And you know, uh, that particular understanding of incarnation, that it overshadowed everything else. What is so paradoxical about that position is that, in fact, the celebration of Easter seems to have started in circles around John. We've got a controversy at the end of the second century that's called the Quarter Deciman Controversy. There are these groups of Christians, which include people like Melito, one of the school of John and Irenaeus as well, I, I would think, and so on, who are celebrating Easter on the 14th of Nisan, whatever day of the week it is. The way Eusebius presents it, and remember, he's a 4th century bishop, that everybody's celebrating Easter on Sunday, Sunday's a day of resurrection. It's unthinkable to him that it could have been in any other way. So he sees these quarter decimals as being uh, uh, what do you call it? An offshoot, uh, uh, a wayward te tendency, a Judaizing tendency within early Christianity. Yeah, uh, a misguided group. Or, uh, uh, the word escapes me, but but that. But in fact, if you look at the early material, um, we've got an, uh, we've got a lot of material which talks about how Easter was celebrated, the the, the passion, and it's a single event. The the passion, the which, which encompasses the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and even Pentecost all together as a single night celebration being done on the 14th of Nisan. We've got a lot of material about that. We've got almost no material that connects the resurrection with Sunday. Hmm. Yeah? So, um, it's striking when you read the, the Gospels, there's nothing in it which says, Okay, uh, the, the resurrection encounters you know, on the road to Emmaus and other places. There's nothing which says, now do this this day of the week or this day of the year to commemorate this. Right. 
There's, there's nothing in that, yeah? The, the four mentions in the New Testament which speak about how we gather together on a Sunday. Yeah? Paul gathers together on a Sunday. It's mentioned in Acts. It's mentioned um, a couple of other places. Uh, the book of Revelation, John says, in the Lord's day I was on the Spirit. So what's this Lord's day, you know? But, but there's no connection of this gathering together on the Sunday or the Lord's day with the resurrection. Yeah? And in fact, if you look at some of the early material, like the Didache, which speaks explicitly about gathering on the Lord's Day, Katakiriakin, um, and gives directions on how to pray on that day and how to hold the Eucharist on that day, there is uh, no connection in those prayers to the, to the Passion, to the Crucifixion and Resurrection. Mm-hmm. It's more like a table blessing. You know, it's, it's like a, in, in, in some ways it really is like a Christianization of the Sabbath. The first two mentions you get of connecting the resurrection to a Sunday are in Justin Martyr and in the letter of Barnabas, where they say, we gather together on a Sunday because this is the eighth day, this is the day God created the world, oh, and Jesus also rose on the, uh, from the dead on this day. Oh, it's by the an way. afterthought. So it really seems that the, the gathering together on a Sunday is a Christianization of the Sabbath, a Sabbath observation, and everybody's doing that. But you also have these Christians around John, and probably Paul as well, who says, you know, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, let's hold the feast. Yeah? But, but we don't know more than that. But we've got all this stuff going back to John, which says, uh, where you've got this Passover, Paschal celebration of the Lord's Passion, which is being done on the 14th of Nisan. Okay? And then during the course of the second century, this became a controversy. Why are you doing this? And the resolution is to hold it um, on, the, on the following Sunday. Okay? And then it becomes a three-day event. It's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the tridium. And then that develops further on in history. By the time you get to Eusebius, he assumes the resurrection is connected to the Sunday and is always meant to be that way and overlooks it. So we've got this material in the second century which points back to John. Both theologically, this is the origin of, of our uh, tradition, and also uh, the celebration of Pascha. Okay? And then you've got this really fascinating statement in Polycrates. Polycrates of Ephesus wrote a letter to Victor of Rome saying, no, we're going to keep celebrating this day, whatever you do, whatever you threaten us, we're, we're going to keep us celebrating this day um, because we've always done so. Seven of my, 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 my kinsmen have been bishops, we've always kept this date and we're never going to abandon it. Okay? And then he says, uh, he speaks about John and he says, who wore the petalon in Jerusalem. Yeah? Uh, the petalon is the, the mark of the high priest, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, as Richard Bowken points out, it's the unambi- it unambiguously says that John was the high priest in the Jerusalem temple. Mm. Now, what on earth do you make of that? Are you really meant to take it seriously that John was actually ministering as a high priest in the physical temple in, in Jerusalem? Right. You know, yes, yes, John is known to the temple people and is able to get in in his gospel and gets Peter in and so on, but to be the high priest? So people don't really know what to make of that. Um, some people have taken it literally and tried to explain it away. Other people have said, no, he's talking metaphorically, that all Christians are priests, the high priestly, na- priest, priestly nation, race and so on. But that doesn't do justice to the idea that he wore the petalon in Jerusalem. Um, Richard Baucom ident- suggests that it's a, an example of a conflation of names. He's conflating the John who wrote the gospel with the John mentioned in Acts 4 or Acts 6, 
six four four six remember which which talks about John and another who of the of the high priest of the priestly family. Okay, there's a conflation of names and making that. Now, I think much more is going on than that, and that really is going back to the fact that the Gospel of John recontextualizes what the temple is. And you're told that from the beginning of the gospel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He was talking not of, not of the temple, but uh, he was talking about the temple of his body. Okay. So the temple has been reconfigured in John to speak about Christ and his body. And then you have John standing at the foot of the cross. So you've got Christ, the lamb mm-hmm. being sacrificed, John, the high priest standing at the foot of the cross, this being the, the scope of what the temple is and offering in the temple. Yeah, so it's a recontextualizing of that, placing John at the position of being the high priest in that. Yeah, there's also quite a bit of work done recently, um, Mary Coley and others, about the liturgical nature of John. How John is so much more focused on the feast of the temple mm-hmm. and it's highly structured, going through the liturgical year of the of the feast of the temple and presenting Christ in terms of the temple and as a content of each feast. You know. When he says, I am the light of the world, it's not a general metaphysical statement. It's in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, where the theme of light is the predominant one. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So, this, so the whole of the gospel is a recontextualizing of the temple and its liturgy, recontextualizing it in terms of Christ himself. Yeah? Do we have any sort of um, historical uh, data about what it might have looked like for him to act as the sort of communal high priest after the resurrection, for example. I mean, what, what would that have looked like? No, is it just a pastoral so, so, type so, role? So, or? So, so, so what we've got is Melitos on Pascha, Peri Pascha, uh, written probably about 170 AD. And that's the earliest and a Paschal celebration we've got altogether. It really is a, a Passover Haggadah. Yeah, um, a Christian Passover Haggadah, mm-hmm. accompanying the the cedar meal for Passover. Yeah, and that's the earliest. How that would relate to what John himself did a hundred years earlier, we don't know. Yeah, sure. uh, but, but but that's our nearest indication to that. But the, so there may have been more of a kind of what you were saying, more of a uh, feast supper type idea, more than a yeah. sort of what what we do now, basically on Easter. You know, we we got very little idea about what was actually being done in the Jewish tradition for Passover mm-hmm. altogether. And in fact, Melito is one of our key sources for what might have been done in all of that. Yeah, it's a really beautiful text, really beautiful text. You can, you know, there there, uh, there are several videos of line, online of me reading through it and talking through it and explaining what's going on in it. It's it's a fantastic text, and the the poetry of that text has influenced later hymnographical developments. You can hear echoes of it in different places. It, it is actually liturgical. At one point he mentions the Afikomen, utos o Afikomenos ex uranu. This is the one coming from heaven. And the Afikomen almost certainly there refers to the piece of bread broken off from the loaf, hidden at the beginning of the meal, and then identified halfway through the meal. And so, so it's, it's really Eucharistic. It's fully liturgical like that. Yeah, and if you think through how, you know, I was actually just uh, teaching a, a New Testament seminar last night on this, and, you know, if you compare the Gospels, you have the Synoptics and you have John's Gospel, and one of the noticeable uh, omissions in John's Gospel is the uh, Lord's Supper, right, in yeah. the upper room. So, yeah. so is there, is, would you say, you know, we're kind of psychoanalyzing a little bit at this point what John is thinking or doing, but is it because he has this larger view on these feasts and these celebrations, you think, that maybe the Synoptic Gospels were just sort of you know, including that story, but maybe John had a much bigger picture, or do you, is there any connection there that you see uh, uh, in terms of, of who he is and what he's trying to do? 
Not sure about that. Not sure about that. In a sense, the whole of John's Gospel is this presentation of Christ as the fulfillment of all the, the temple and its feasts. Yeah. So you, you can see it simply as that. You, you've, of course, you've got John 6, um, the whole bread of life discourse and so on, which is really important for understanding the prologue, um, which nobody ever does, by the way. By the way we might get into that. Mm-hmm. But the relationship between John and the synoptics, I, I didn't go into that, and that's something I want to do next, along with yeah. many other things I want to do next. Yeah. But you know, I was focusing on John for all of this. Yeah, but it did get me to thinking about that, because I think you know, maybe maybe there is something there to you saying this idea that, um, yes, he does talk about if you want to eat my body and drink my, my blood, you know, then, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, maybe there is just this much larger picture there where, where he's not uh, focusing on this one meal or he may not have, you know, if he's not the son of Zebedee, he may not have even been there and known about it. Right. Or, or may not have thought it was important to bring up. Well, no, I mean, uh, he laid on the breast, you know, so he did lay on the breast at that, but, but okay. it's, it's not sent in the same way as in the synoptics. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely right. Not, yeah. Okay, so yeah. another thing that you talk about in the book, uh, uh, I th- what I found especially illuminating and uh, just theologically exciting, for lack of a better word, um, is your discussion on Tetelestai. Uh, it is finished. And yeah. How you so, so, through- so, so, so John, John's standing at the foot of the cross, the high priest. We did, we did all of that liturgical fulfillment and all that kind of thing. It's also worth pointing out that in John, you know, we tend to read John followed by Acts. Yeah, <laughs> but no, Acts follows Luke. He doesn't follow John. If anything, the book of Revelation follows John. But in John, when Christ is lifted up upon the cross, it encompasses both Ascension and Pentecost. Yeah, which, in a sense, you, you've got, just take it one, one step further back. You've got, with the, with the people following John, you've got this um, single night celebration of our Lord's Passover. Yeah, his passage, his Pascha, Easter, and it encompasses crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, the whole thing in one. The way I would speak about it is like a pure white light. Yeah? And then over time, that pure white light is, as it were, refracted through a prism, and you get a spectrum of colors. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've inherited. And that's good. It means you can appreciate each color particularly. And get you know is the flavor of each, but you have to remember that holds together in that singularity of the pure white light of the singularity of the Paschal event. So we tend to think of ascension as being something distinct from all of that. No, but it holds together in that. So John actually brings it all together. Uh, already, um, John Ashton pointed that out. He li- he's lifted up in glory upon the cross. When I am lifted up, then you will know I am. Yeah, and from the cross he breathes the Spirit. We, we, we tend to translate it, he handed over his spirit, but there is no his, it's the spirit. We, we read John in terms of the synoptics, you know, Christ's life has come to an end, he bows his head, he breathes his last breath, he dies, and so on. But no, he's lifted up in glory and hands over the, the spirit. Mm. So crucifixion, ascension, and Pentecost are fused together. John Ashton used the word fused. I'd actually say not so much fused as they haven't yet been separated. Mm-hmm. Turn that pure white light, and then he says to Teleste, okay. Which, because we tend to read John following the synoptics in that mold, we think typically we think it means you know it's ended. Yeah, my work's come to an end, or it's the end of it. But the word in Greek means much more. It is brought to completion. It's brought to perfection. Mm-hmm. You know, something's been perfected. This is a telos. This is the goal of all of that. One other aspect which has really fascinated me is the way that they speak of a human being. Mm-hmm. 
we all know Irenaeus says the glory of God is a living human being. We think it's a wonderful statement, yeah? But the second half of the statement is, and the life of the human being is to see God. Mm-hmm. Well, no one can see God and live. <laughs> yeah. So, in fact, he's talking about a martyr. When he says the glory of God is a living human being, the living human being is the one who is being martyred. Okay? Ignatius, likewise, on his way to Rome, he's, he, he exhorts, the, exhorts the Roman Christians saying, whatever you do, don't stop me being martyred. I'm going to my martyrdom. Don't stop me that. I'm about to, the, the birth pangs are upon me. Mm-hmm. I'm about to come to the light. When I will have arrived there, I will be a human being. So he's not yet born, he's not yet living, and he's not yet human. Mm-hmm. He'll only become human by following Christ, taking up the cross, being martyred like that. Yeah. So if that's the case, if that's how they understand what it is to be a human being, then is there something more going on when Christ says to telestate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, something's finished. So we spoke a minute ago about how Christ, how, how the Gospel of John recontextualizes a temple and its feasts. Okay. So that's going back to Exodus. Yeah, Moses wrote of me. Well, you've got Exodus and all the things about the tabernacle, eventually the temple and all that is recontextualized to speak about Christ. But Moses also wrote Genesis. And, and John is also clearly playing off Genesis. He tells you that from the opening words in the beginning. Yep. Okay, so as soon as you read the opening words, you should think about Genesis because John's doing something with that. Yeah. Um, and then when you go back to Genesis, you can note a distinction between uh, how it speaks. So it starts off with God creating, and he creates everything by speaking. Let there be, let there be, let there be, you know, lights, let there be, let the waters be separated, let the, the earth bring forth um, plants and so on. It's all in the imperative, let there be. And then he does something quite different. He uses a subjunctive, let us make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is it, and that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a distinction between a subjunctive and an imperative. So you could say everything else is spoken into existence by the word of God. It is, it's done, it's good, period. But then, having spoken everything into existence, like the backdrop, the, the scenery on the stage, God then begins his project. It's a project. Let us make. Yeah. Yeah? It's a project. And I would argue that is only complete when Christ is on the cross. Okay? And the, the giveaway for that is Pilate's words only in John, when Pilate says, behold the man. Or Anthropos. So you've got scripture starting off, let there be, let there be, let there be. The scenery is set. Let us make a human being. Behold the human being. Yeah, so it's finished. So this is a true human being here. Christ, you know, it's basically Chalcedonian theology. Right. He defines what it is to be human. Well, if that is what it is to be human, then that's what Ignatius hopes to become as well by also taking up the cross and following Christ. So to be human then is to live by voluntarily taking up the cross, following Christ in self-sacrificial love, to give your amen, to say, to say, let it be. For everything else God says, let it be, with regard to his own project, we're the ones who've got to say, let it be. Yeah, Because if, it, if to be human is to lay down your life in love for your neighbor, as Christ shows it to be, well, then we're the ones who've got to say, let it be. Yeah, And that leads to a really interesting, really fascinating paradox. If that is what it is to be human, then God could not have said, let there be human beings. He can create those who can give their let it be, Adam, Eve, and the whole, all that we are, but we've got to grow into 
our giving that let it be. Yeah? And that's something you learn. So people often ask me, you know, am I not yet a human being? Yeah, you know, you're telling me I'm not human. Well, it depends on how you use the word human. Right. If you use the word human to say, you know, um, somebody with, with, with two legs, two arms, and a tongue, however you want to define a human being. Well, and, no, if, if you want to define a human being as somebody who can walk and talk, well, a newborn baby with perfect limbs is not able to do that. Mm. Yeah? Certainly can grow to do that, but it's going to require a lot of physical work to grow, to exercise, to fall down, to pick yourself up, and then gradually it becomes a toddler. Okay? So if that's your definition of human being, well, that's, that's where you are. If your definition of a human being is a, a rational animal, you mentioned you had kids in the background somewhere. How old are they? Six and three. Well, you're working, you're working on this part then, yeah? yeah. <laughs> if to be human is to be a rational animal, that requires a lot more work than work, learning how to walk and talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got to, you know, instruct, teach, cajole, whatever it might be, to, to bring that toddler into being a rational animal. If, on the other hand, you say that to be a human being is to live not for yourself, to try and preserve your life, and if you try and preserve your life, as Christ tells us, you're going to lose it no matter what. Your breath will expire. Mm-hmm. But if you use your breath to live not for yourself, but for your neighbor, for Christ, for the kingdom, for, the, for all the things you can say, um, that requires a lot more growth, a lot more growth in virtue. And then as we start to do that, we begin to live a life which cannot be touched by death because we've entered into it through death. Mm-hmm. We, we're using our natural life, our breath, which will expire, no matter how much we try and preserve it, will expire. We're using that self-sacrificially in love for our neighbor and so on, not living for myself but for others. Well, the life I'm beginning to live that way cannot be touched by death. We've entered into it through death. Yeah? So we are the ones who have to give our amen, our let it be. Christ does it, Mary does it, Ignatius does it, we do it, we take it up like that. Yeah? So the only thing which is said to be God's own project, we are the ones who have to say let it be. Mm. Yeah? And we, do, we can do that because of Christ who shows us both what it is to be God and what it is to be human in one mm-hmm. through the passion. Yeah? It's not by working miracles that disciples knew him to be God. It's through the passion they know that, going back to scriptures and so on. Yeah. Okay? And so, so that's what I think John is doing. And it's confirmed both by the second century reading of, of what it is to be human, but also on both sides of the, of the crucifixion in John, you've got Pilate saying, behold the human being. Yeah? And then John makes a further play, moving from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. Okay? And it does a further play with that. So in Genesis 2, God makes Adam from the dust, sets him in the garden to work it, and then he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And what does he do? Makes him a helper. No, he makes all the animals. <laughs> he makes all the animals. Yeah, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And he brings him all the animals. Yeah, and only by about verse twenty, I think it is. Does Adam? Does is it said? But for Adam, there was found a helper. There was not found a helper fit for him. Yeah, yeah? and it's kind of ambiguous who found that. Do you say it's in the passive? So you've got two possibilities: is it God or is it Adam? Okay, if it's God, well, that, does that mean then that God was working by trial and error? 
it's not good for man to be alone. Let's make a helper fit for him. Here, try an elephant. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> try a giraffe. No, it doesn't work. Now, God's not working by trial and error. But if he's not working by trial and error, and so it must be Adam who said, um, there's no one fit for me, mm-hmm. then the question is, why did God bring all the animals in? And the answer, really, and it goes back, the rabbis were doing this, is that God was awakening in Adam a recognition of his incompleteness by himself. And then when Adam recognizes it, um, Adam's put to sleep, a rib is taken out, the rib is built to a woman, and the woman is led to uh, to Adam with the words, uh, Adam then saying, here at last is flesh my flesh, burn my bone, for this reason a man should leave his father and mother and join himself to his wife. Okay. Now what's particularly interesting about that verse is that it's not a historical description. In every case, the woman is led to the husband uh, and joins the husband's family. But Adam says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, join himself to the spouse. So I think you have to take a Christological reading of it. Christ is the one who leaves the father's side to join himself to the spouse. Okay? And then you've got the play, to bring, go back to John, you've got the play that, that Adam is put to sleep, Christ is put to sleep. From Adam comes the rib, from Christ comes the blood and water. Yeah. Eve is said to be the mother of the living, but all her children die. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one coming from the side of Christ, the virgin mother, the church, is the true mother of the living, but for her children to live, they've got to die. Taking up the cross and so on. Yeah, And then there's one further play I'm absolutely sure John is making in this, which is when Eve is led to Adam, who would she have thought him to be? It's a good question. Well, the only way Adam's been identified is as the one placed in the garden to work it. Right. Yeah? When Mary approaches a risen Christ, who does she think he is? A gardener. A gardener. There you go. <laughs> so John's not only playing off Genesis 1, he's playing off Genesis 2. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and so, and, and, and you build an even, and you and build on, continue to build on that. You know, you talk about this idea that um, he's the mystery of God that has been completed, that there's this thing yeah. that has been set in motion here, right, that he is, he is completing. It reminded me uh, a little bit of, of Athanasius on, on the Incarnation when he talks about uh, this idea that the Incarnation is not just that he was born of a virgin, but the Incarnation is his life and his work and everything that he is doing to bring the purposes of God yeah. to their culmination. So talk through that a little bit in, in this. Uh, you, you know, so Athanasius, in his classic work on the Incarnation, he barely mentions Jesus' birth from Mary. Right. The, the incarnation, the, the work on the incarnation, Athanasius says he's going to show that the one on the cross is the word of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's his focus. That's what he's writing. And he calls that incarnation. That's what he, he that's the time he gives the whole work. Yeah. Um, so he goes through and gives a couple of different accounts of why, why Christ died on the cross and what was affected by that. He destroyed death, brought life. Um, he then talks about why Christ died on the cross, and then he turns to the question of resurrection. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, when he turns to the resurrection, he doesn't even mention the resurrection appearances of Christ in the gospel. For him, when he wants to talk about the resurrection, he says, well, look at all the Christians who are taking up the faith of the cross and trampling death underfoot yep. yeah, through their fear of death. They are the witnesses of his resurrection. They are his body. Yeah. So resurrection, uh, incarnation is not simply Jesus is being born from Mary 33 years before the Passion and so on. We only know all of this. We only know how to read Genesis onwards in the light of the Passion. 
This is a, the turning point in which we can see how all things lead to this. Adam's a type of the one to come from the very beginning. You know, it's not that Adam never needed Christ and that, you know, he falled and then Christ is plan B, as, as I put it. No, right. Adam from the beginning is a type of Christ. And what happens with Adam, like we just saw, being put to sleep, is a type of what happens in Christ's own passion. Yeah, the rib, the woman, and all that kind of thing. So all of this, then be, the whole of creation from Adam onwards, our movement from Adam to Christ, which is also, as a matter of fact, our movement from infancy to death, from being born in this world to being born into life through our death, it's the same movement, is an economy, uh, meaning an arrangement, and it's a pedagogy in which we learn how to grow from Adam to Christ, from the old Adam to the new Adam, from the man of dust to the man of heaven, all the different ways you can play that out, from being born as an infant to learning how to walk, to learning how to talk, to learning how to be reasonable, to learning how to practice virtue and all that kind of thing. It's all a pedagogy so that we can be incorporated into Christ, giving our free voluntary assent to be conformed to him so that God can be all in all. And that God being all in all really is what is meant by incarnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you bring in all that garden imagery too, you know, it reminds me of, of the end of Revelation, right? Where he brings the tree of life back, back yeah. to the center of, of you know, yeah. the, the human being's dwelling, for lack of a better word, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the cross is a tree of life. Yeah. Yeah. To put it in, in concrete terms, um, you know, we come into existence in Egypt, in Adam, we come into existence in Egypt. Mm. Nobody asked me if I want to be born. I had no choice about the matter. Here I am. Without, We think we got freedom, but I've got no choice about whether I was born or not. I come into existence in slavery. No choice. I can choose between tea or coffee, but that's facile. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I come into existence in which whatever I do, I'm going to die. We pass through the waters of baptism, and we now enter into the world as a desert. Mm in which we're learning to take up the cross and follow Christ and so on. And to the extent we take up the cross, the cross becomes a tree of life, and this world is paradise. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So it's, it's the same movement, absolutely the same movement. Okay, so um, let's shift just a little bit, although not far. Um, you also talk about the prologue as a Paschal hymn, uh, which yeah. I haven't seen a lot of people you know, talk about the idea that it has a, it's, it's liturgical and hymnic. I mean, there's some liturgical conversations about what's happening there, but um, I thought well, that it, was especially it, illuminating as well. Yeah, but, but it wasn't so much the, the hymnic nature of it that was a distinguishing thing, because as you mentioned, other people have done that as well. Right. But it's changing presupposition about what it's talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So almost everybody presumes that it's talking about an, a pre-incarnate word with God in eternity who by verse 14 becomes human, being born of Mary. Although verse 14 doesn't say anything about a birth, infancy narratives don't say anything about the word of God. We just put them together and we come up with what we come up with. And then we get to, into questions about, well, why does he already mention he was in the world a few verses earlier, yet he's not yet born to verse 14? So clearly the verses are out of order. We've got to rearrange them and we've got to drop the bit about the Baptist because that's unusual where it is and all that kind of stuff, yeah, which is typically how the prologue is handled. But if you come with the presupposition that John is in fact primarily a Paschal gospel, mm-hmm. yeah, then it looks very different. And so the, when, when I was working through it, I argued that it's in fact in three short uh, expanding blocks. 
So the, the first verse, I argue, is in fact a summary of the whole gospel. In the beginning is the word. Well, the term word is a title of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. We tend to change the subject. We start with a word who then becomes Jesus. Whereas in fact, the whole early tradition is that logos is a title of the crucified and risen one. Athanasius wants to write on the incarnation to show that the one on the cross is the word of God. You do the book of Revelation, the only other time word of God appears. It's as the name of the rider on the white horse whose robe is dipped dipped in blood. It's the title of the crucified one. So if you start with that and say, okay, word is a title of the crucified one, Ahi, whatever Ahi means, it's not beginning in a temporal sense. Yeah? Um, in Latin, it's translated in principium, not in initium. Yeah? It's in first place, in, in authority, as the head of all things, as the source of all things. That's what Ahi means. So, in first place is crucified and risen Christ. He is prostontheon going to the Father, which Jesus is all the way through the Gospel of John. He repeats, I'm going to the Father, not yet, I'm going, not yet, now I'm about to go, now I'm really going. Mm-hmm. All the way through, it's mar- marked by that, yeah? And then the Gospel really ends, uh, kind of ends with Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, yeah? So the first verse is a summary of the whole Gospel. In first place is Jesus Christ, he's going to the Father, he is God. Summary of the whole Gospel. Verse 2 to 5 is also um, an expanded version of that summary, all things happened by him. Without him, nothing happened. What came to be in him is life. Life was the light of men. All of that, yeah? And then verse, is it 6 to, yeah, 6 to the end, 18, is uh, another summary, but now expanded, starting with a Baptist, ending with a Baptist, no chiastic structure. There was a man sent from God to bear witness. He wasn't the, wit- he wasn't the light, but he bore witness to the light. And it ends with, this is the witness of John. Okay, so we've got a chaotic structure to that. Then it goes to, he was in the world, but the world received him not. And then it continues, but to those who received him, he gave the power to become children of God, born not of God, uh, but born not of the flesh or the blood, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt en in me, in us. Yeah. So you've got this chaotic structure where the center of the chiasm is the passion. He's in the world, the world was made by him, but the world rejected him. But to those who received him. And then you've got baptism and Eucharist. The word, uh, he gave the power to become children of God, born of the flesh, born of God, baptism, and the word became flesh. So because we assume that John is talking about incarnation in the way that we talk about it today, starting with a pre-incarnate word who then is born of Mary to become Jesus, we think flesh simply means human nature. Mm-hmm. And we say, well, we're not Apollinarian, so of course we mean flesh plus soul. Yeah? But as I point out, John 1.14 doesn't talk about a birth, and it just followed on from baptism to those who received and gave the power to become children of God. And you're assuming you know what the word flesh means. Uh, well, you've got a whole, if you, if you want to know what the word flesh means for John, you've got to look at his gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay? And there are a couple of times when he says to the Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. Fine, a standard of the world, whatever you want to do. But you've got the whole of John 6, where you've got the whole meditation by Christ on what his flesh is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it couldn't be more explicit, this whole chapter devoted to Christ's own exposition of what my flesh is. So when Christ says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, 
he's not really inviting the people around him to pull his arms off and start gnawing. Right. <laughs> yeah, obviously not. And that would be cannibalism. Yeah. And even if that were what he meant, well, that would only be possible for those who were there on that day, which doesn't really help anybody else. Right. And then it's interesting that in John 6, he changes tense. Yeah. So it's not eat this, but the flesh and blood I will give you. So Christ has to ascend the cross to be able to descend as the heavenly bread, his flesh and blood, the flesh and blood of the Son of Man descending from heaven that we can now eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, and so when it says the word became flesh, that's what I think it's referring to. This Jesus Christ, by ascending the cross, is able to descend as a, the heavenly bread, the flesh and blood of the Son of Man, which we can now eat so that he dwells in us and we see his glory. So, so that way of, account, of reading the prologue actually fits so much better with the gospel, mm-hmm. and it also means that you do not have to rearrange parts of the, uh, of, the, of the flow of the prologue in order to make sense of it as you think it should be. Yeah? And it actually fits better with, with the early Christian reading of it from Irenaeus onwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, we'll kind of close out here. We've already gone a, a solid 53 minutes, which is great. Um, and I could do it for three hours. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, toward the beginning there about the history of Easter and sort of how this yeah. clearly had some changes in the fourth century. Um, yeah. The way that we do it now, would you say, what, what are some, some things about how we as a church, whether it's Protestant, Orthodox, whatever, yeah. view Easter and practice Easter that you would say, if you, if you had it your way, and you could say, this is, this is a better way to do it the way historically and theologically I think it means to uh, be, be done and represented I, in practice, not just in theology, what would be some things you'd say that we're just completely missing on now? Besides just showing up and going to Easter because it's a good <laughs> thing to do, right? I think we really need to take account of how it holds together in that coherence of a single event and not refract it into, oh, it's Good Friday, now he's dying, oh, now it's Sunday, he's raising, and the two things are disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah? In the Orthodox tradition, we start singing a hymn on Easter Day, on Pascha itself, which we then sing for 40 days, we sing it hundreds of times over that time, beyond count. And it's a really simple hymn, but which holds it all together, but we tend not to pay attention to it. The hymn is simply this, it's Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and to those in the tombs giving life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very simple. But if you think of it as Christ has died, oh, now he's risen and he's destroyed death. He's managed to get out of the tomb and he's conquered death. Then you fail to pay attention to the fact that the way he's destroyed death is by death. Mm -hmm. Death is the last enemy. But the way that it's destroyed is by death. Mm -hmm. So it turns out to be the mode of victory as well as the last enemy to be destroyed. And it's only destroyed by, by, as it were, turning in upon itself or or using, no longer being a passive victim of death, but rather being an active uh, agent taking up the cross, dying to yourself, living a life of self-sacrificial love. So if you forget how that holds together, then you might think it would be Christ is risen, He's destroyed death, and now I can live longer. <laughs> you know, I, I can live the life as I've always wanted to live it, in happiness and whatever, 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 and I can just continue doing that because Christ has made it all right. No, it doesn't work like that. Uh, he's, he's, he's given life 
you know, Christ says in Gospel of John, I come that you might have life. Well, that means that you don't have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Life which cannot be touched by death, but that can only be entered into through death as a mode of love. Okay? So that him, risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and to those in the tombs giving life. Yeah? Which is us. You know, we have to recognize that, in fact, without him, we are dead. Yeah? And that what we think of as our life, we're dead from the beginning. The first breath we take, you know, mm-hmm. our breath is going to expire. We're as good as dead from the beginning. We are the ones who are dead, and he's giving us life, but that means that the life he's giving us is not that which we thought we had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes back to Michel Henry, phenomenology, and all that kind of thing. Yeah? Um, so to take all of that really seriously, how that all holds together. Uh, you know, going back to talk about how the uh, the feast came to be celebrated over over seven days and then extended and, and, and all the rest of it. It's interesting how the image, the imagery for that is also depicted. The imagery, the initial imagery is of the living Christ upon the cross, who's, who's the victorious one. And when that image starts to bifurcate into an image of the dead Christ on the cross, you have an image of the resurrection. But the image of the resurrection, the earliest imagery, and maybe if you're doing a video, you can put it up, um, is not that of Christ getting out of the tomb. It's of him raising up Adam and Eve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. While he still stands in the form of the cross, it's still a crucified one. He's, got his, he's standing with his arms outstretched, and the gates of Hades is placed in the form of the cross. It's still a crucified one, and we are the ones who are being risen. Mm-hmm. But that means we've got to recognize that we're dead, which is not so, <laughs> which is not so pleasant to do. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, and so, would you say then um, it's it's not a um, it's not a, a screed on the on the liturgical calendar or something like that, but rather seeing it as a connected event, even though it's over several days, even though obviously you know you have Pentecost Sunday and you have these other things. It's not that the liturgical calendar is wrong; it's the way that we're viewing the calendar that's wrong. Yeah. Well, uh, Father John, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, I could I could do this longer. Um, do you have any any uh, thing that you're working on that's coming soon that we should know about and think about, and that I can cajole you into talking to me about later? I'm doing an, a critical edition of Greg of Nyssa on the making of man. Okay. That's that's what's kept me going. But the that's a textual work. The next project I'm going to do, a book work, is going to be a trilogy, and you'll love this revelation. It's going to be called uh, the Lamb, the Bride. In the marriage feast, mm. Christology, ecclesiology, anthropology. I'm in. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Sign me up. Uh, who's gonna and who's gonna publish that? Not sure yet. Okay, but it's, it's okay. gonna happen. I'm sure somebody somebody will. Tell yeah, me. It, it, but it'll be another couple of years before I finish that. Yeah. Well, I'll be ready for that for sure. Well, Father okay. John, uh, thank you again. I appreciate it so much. It was good to chat. Good to see you again. Okay. Keep well. Keep healthy and enjoy Easter. Celebrate wonderfully. Yes, sir. You too. Okay. Cheers.